that one child said something out you know loud and another child was like like can you can you please keep it down and i was like what what is going on look why are these children acting like adults and you know and then later on they were full they were folding the napkins after lunch and it was like these children were so independent and grown up that i, I was like sign me up sign, like we want an independent child this is amazing I'm Miriam Hoffman, a full-time college student living in Carbondale, Illinois, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today is the final installment of the exercise series, and I interviewed Sarah Krinsky, who runs a boot camp here in St. Louis. Sarah comes highly recommended from people that I really respect, and one of the things that I think is so interesting about the exercise program that she runs is that people have been a part of it for 10, 15 years. And that kind of longevity is one of those things that keeps people from exercising. Oftentimes people will start with some high aspirations. Maybe they do it for a run or two or three. Maybe they stay for three weeks, but then it falls off. So I really wanted to talk with Sarah about how do you have longevity? How do you lead a group What is it about her personality that allowed a group to just keep coming back? And you'll notice during this conversation that I struggled to get her to talk about herself because she is so good at seeing the potential in other people, at seeing what's possible and not seeing the walls that keep them from getting to where they're going, that when they pass through things that they never thought that they could do, she's not surprised. And so it's hard for her to really have a deep look into her leadership style, but we have a great conversation. We talk all about why people are motivated to exercise, what gets them going through it. And then we move into a conversation about Montessori schools and about how she has turned her marketing and communications career into a totally different direction. And now she goes and helps Montessori schools get started around the country. And she talks all about what the philosophy of Montessori is. It was so impactful that I am now going to be reading the book she suggested and uh, really looking into this philosophy. And I know for a fact that this will generate conversations inside of the Articulate Ventures Network, which you've probably heard me talking about before. But this is a group that is growing. And it's a group of people that are trying to get together in a community. They come from all different walks of life. And they're saying, this is what I hope to accomplish. This is a dream I've always wanted to reach and I didn't know how. And so I'm going to just put it out here. And what you notice is that people form into little groups and they say, I can help you with this part of it. Maybe I can help you figure out your accounting challenge. Hey, maybe I can help you by giving you feedback on the thing you've produced so far. And what is building here is something so far beyond what I think anything else that's going on in social media. So if you've been one of those people that's like, I want to get off of social media, but this is my contact with the outside world, then I would I would encourage you to go to network.articulate.ventures and take a look at this group and see if this is something that you would want to do. Even if you aren't able to name the dreams that you have, Just getting around a bunch of people that are striving to try and make their lives better, to try and add things into the world, starts to become inspirational. And you see what other people are capable of doing, and it makes you want to do a little bit more yourself. So you would be welcome to join. If you're a person that likes conversations like the one I'm about to have with uh, ma'am, Sarah Krinsky, then I hope that you would consider joining the Articulate Ventures Network. So go to network.articulate.ventures. Thanks, and we're going to head into this interview with bootcamp instructor, 
ma'am. Sarah Krinsky, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Vance. I'm excited. So you are uh, one of the most well-known boot camps in uh, St. Louis, which is an interesting thing because I'm in the middle of doing exercise week and I have asked around with people that know a lot about exercise and your name came up not once but twice as somebody that I should talk to. So I got you on here and I'm really excited that you're here. Thanks. We, my husband and I have both been teaching boot camp for, for quite some time now. So we've, we've got to meet a lot of people over the years and it's We've been doing it for over 15 years. So so hopefully the reason you know is because we've met so many people and they've been in class and enjoyed the experience. You know, it's funny when the term boot camp first came out, I was like uh, completely repelled by this idea, right? Like who on earth would go put themselves in that position to do it? So what is a boot camp and why do you term what you're doing that way? I think, we're, I think first what I should do is clarify the difference between the boot camps that we run and maybe other boot camps. Because when boot camps, the fad started off about 15 years ago, and it was very drill sergeant-like, where it's somebody would stand up in front of the class and yell at people. And that is not the type of boot camp that we run. Um, there, are, there is a need for that. There are people who are very motivated by someone just yelling at them, degrading them. And if you need that, that is... It is your thing and more power to you. There are boot camps in St. Louis that operate like that. Um, they're also very well known in the community. Uh, those instructors stand up in front of you and yell at you. Um, so be it, if that's what you like. That is, is not what we do. Our boot camp is, uh, the instructors are the drill sergeants. We have boot camp names. The people in my class call me ma'am. The people in my husband's class call him sir but we're doing all the exercises with the people in the class. And so we're up in front of the class yelling, you know, let's do 25 bodybuilders. And we'll, we'll count it like a military style class, but it's more of encouraging people like, come on, you can do it and, and making it fun. Um, there are a lot of calisthenics that go into the class. We do not use any equipment in our class. These are all very boot camp style exercises. So if you were joining a boot camp, like a military actual boot camp, if you're doing jumping jacks and pushups and crunches and running, it's variations of that Monday through Thursday. You know, it's interesting. You brought up the idea of nicknames or like that people call you ma'am. When I heard about this uh, philosophy that you guys have or this practice that you have, I think it was like, at first I thought it was kind of funny. And then I realized, wait a second, maybe this allows people to take on a persona that allows them to be a different person than uh, who they are in their normal life, right? Somebody that thinks I'm not an exerciser, but then they show up at boot camp and now they take on this persona. Is that right? Yes and no. I think I think it serves a couple of verses. One, you get a name on your first day. You stand up in front of the class, which that's intimidating anyways for people to stand up in front of the class. But you you get in, you stand up in front of the class and I say, tell us about yourself. Where are you from? What do you like to do for fun? Have you ever been to prison? You know, just silly things to get them <laughs> to get them loosened up. And and people yell out other names. Sometimes they're super inappropriate. Sometimes they fit along with what they do as a career. Uh, they're just it's just to have fun. And then you have a boot camp name. And that is that automatically makes you part of the group. And now that we're talking about more though, and you're talking about this other persona, it does make me think that when people show up to a, an exercise class, any type of fitness class, it can be intimidating just to just to show up. If you're not if you're not into fitness, you may think like maybe I need to lose a little weight first, or maybe I need to start walking first. And I think even after the first day, 
that bootcamp name kind of gives you a different persona of like, well, this is who I am in class. I can be this. It doesn't actually matter if I wasn't in shape before. Or I wasn't, you know, I wasn't able to run a mile or whatever it was that was making you angsty about showing up for an exercise class. But the real, the real purpose was to make people feel like they're part of this group because that's really the goal there. I mean, making everyone feel comfortable, making them feel accepted. And if you're up in front of the class and people are yelling out silly things at 5.45 in the morning, you instantly realize like, okay, like this, I could do this. These people are fun. This is going to be good. We're going to have a good time. So who is the type of person that shows up and, and is willing to put themselves through having a name to them? And like, who does this? Uh, everyone, everyone. We have such an interesting group of people. <clears throat> Let's see. So it, it really is all ages. I, for a long time, I would say I was probably the youngest person in the class for, for quite some time. And the range is, we, gosh, we have one gentleman who had shown up, who showed up. He was over 70 when he started. And, and that was, you know, that's not typical. So that was unique. We have other people who are middle-aged who think, I just, I want to, I want to be able to drink wine or eat candy and not have to worry about gaining weight. Uh, we have people who are CFOs of banks. We have business owners. We have people who are stay-at-home parents. Um, it's, it just runs the gamut. We have people who are Ironmen and Ironwomen. We have people who can't even walk a block without taking to stop, you know, stop and rest for a minute. So it really is a whole hodgepodge of people who just come together and and find joy in working out in the morning at 5:45 before going off to work or doing the things that they do throughout the day. I think one of the things that was interesting that struck me about your particular boot camp or your exercise program that's different is the longevity of it. Because you're talking, the people that I spoke with were like, I've been doing this for 15 years. I've been doing this for 12 years. And you think about there aren't very many things, very many habits or very many, I mean, maybe drinking or vices we take on for that long. But there's not very many positive direction things that people take on in that way. What do you think is is making the longevity possible? You know, when when you had sent me an email inviting me to be on the podcast, it really it made me stop and think. And there have been lots of times where I'd stop to think about about the community that, that the class has created. But really, when we started off these boot camps, the goal was never to keep this going forever. This is not my full time job. This is not really even a part time job or my husband's job. We. We have, we have day jobs, we have careers, we have a family. Um, we thought this was a fad that would last for about five years. And heck, if we can make a couple extra bucks doing it, great. Like it, it really was just a, a thing that we, we both fell into and it was fun. And, and we thought it'd be done within five years when the craze for bootcamp was over. Um, the thing that evolved is that you have this fun group of, you have this group of people who are having a good time doing something that is not intrinsically fun. Like you don't think of exercises like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go work out. This is good, we're gonna have a blast. But I think because of the camaraderie that developed in the class and the relationships that were developed, the motivation shifted and it became, it did, it evolved into a community versus, versus just an exercise class that I signed up for that I'm gonna attend for six weeks. I think, Initially, when people signed up, they think I'm gonna, I want to just get in shape or stay in shape, and then they became friends with people in the class, and they felt like, oh, I have to show up. So and so is expecting me to be there. 
Yeah, there's something really deep about uh, shared experience, particularly through suffering, right? Like if you endure something with another person and like, you know, like the the way you fall in romantic love, right? You you go through something difficult with a person and then you look and you're like, it was really fun that we went through that awful thing together or you know, friendships that are created around that, it makes total sense to me that suffering would create, joint suffering would create a kind of bond among people. Yeah, I, I agree. I, one thing that I think was is the best example of that is, so what happens is we have all these people who come to class and lots of times they get really fit and then they become runners. And sometimes we just, we lose them from the class, but they start becoming part of a different group of boot campers who are now running on Fridays and Saturdays and they may not be coming to class anymore but we still see them on Fridays and Saturdays running and and one example is that of that is um one woman who had started class her name is Sweater and I and I asked her ahead of time if I could share this because it was my favorite story or experience from the last 15 years she initially signed up for class because her husband's cancer had come back and it was a stress it was going to be a stress reliever for her and she she wasn't, she wasn't super out of shape or anything, but she wasn't the type who would go sign up for a 5K race. Um, but after her husband passed away, she came back to boot camp again. And she said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a marathon this year. And I don't know if she actually agreed to the rest of us saying, okay, we're going to do one too. But there were about 16 of us who said, well, yeah, sweater's going to do it. I'm going to do it. And there were people who signed up for this marathon, marathon in Tucson and we all went to Tucson, did this marathon. And these were people who could not run a mile before and suffered through the, the heat of Arizona to run the, I mean, people ended up in the hospital because it was so hot, but it was such an incredible experience to bond over so much pain uh, of running this marathon. And again, that was the start of some of our, our trips together as friends uh, was through that. So as the leader of a boot camp, you're in an interesting position, right? Because you need to show up every time. You not only need to show up, you better be there early. And and like you've got to keep things going. You're helping other people overcome what, what people in the Articulate Ventures Network, the group that I'm um, kind of head of, we call the voice of resistance. The thing that says, ah, you can stay in bed today. Ah, you don't have to go run. Ah, you're a little bit. But you as the leader you don't get to hear the voice of resistance when it comes to, to boot camp. So what is the experience like for you day in and day out, knowing you have to be there? I think you're using the term leader strongly here. <laughs> I think most of the people in class with, it is, it, I am leading the class. I am there every day. I am coming up with the exercises every day. I'm trying, you know, I am trying to make the experience enjoyable, but it, I think, the term leader would be laughed at if I said that in class. Um, but I I get paid to be there. Let's be like, not that we're making tons of money off this exercise class. And you know we we try to you know have a you know big holiday party at the end of every year, or a party at the end of every session. And and it's we're not doing this at this point to make money. You know we do make money, but it's not tons of money. But I do get paid, so I don't think twice about like you're not going to think like oh my god go work today. Like that doesn't cross your mind. You get up and go to work. That's what you do. And and this, I think you're tricking yourself. I I think, I think because you, you're, you're doing two ends of the, of the, of the thing against itself. You're saying, well, it's not that much money, but we do get paid, but the money is what motivates me. But if I was like, is the money motivating you to show up? You'd be like, no. So like, there's something there that you've done that has allowed you to short circuit that voice of resistance. And I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing there. 
I think, yes and no. I, I mean, people expect me to be there. I, I'm going to be there. I think another boot camp where I was reaching out to folks prior to this just to get an idea of what keeps them motivated because my it was all speculation. I don't ask people why they show up to class. I don't ask them why they keep coming. Some of that information is extremely personal and so individualized. And I know it evolves over time. And, and Stubb had mentioned, look, people expect me to be there. I don't want... I don't want to let them down. At the same time, I don't want other people to let me, let me down either. So I expect you to be there. I don't think seeing me there every morning is motivating people. I think seeing people like LDB, who is little drummer boy, who hasn't missed a day in an entire year, not a single day of boot camp, which that's 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 crazy. He's paying and he hasn't missed a day. I get paid and I haven't missed a day, but I also get paid <laughs> to be there. That's my it's my it's my company. I, I should be there. It's expected. It's not expected that everyone in class, well, I expect them to show up every day if they don't show up every day. Um, I think it's the other people in class that inspire people in class. And I don't always think they know they're inspiring other people. So if it's either someone who obviously has a goal and is showing up every single day and is getting stronger or losing weight that year or getting faster, or it's someone who show up and just by looking at them, you you can tell they they show up to class, they can't do more than 10 push-ups at a time. But then by you know two or three sessions in, they can knock out 20 push-ups. That is incredibly, it's like seeing people running. If I see a really fit person running down the street, that's great. If I see somebody who, who has extra weight on them, I think that is far more inspiring because it's hard to run when you're in shape. It's a lot harder to run when you're not in shape. So I think having the different mix of people in the class is inspiring in different ways. So Yeah, so- I, th- I totally agree with you. And I remember before I was in shape, before exercise was something that I used to do, when I would see heavy set people running, I would be like, ha, look at them. They look so silly. I bet they'll quit, da, 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 da. Not actually having the conversation with myself of like, hey, you're not out there running. And then when you go out and do it and you know what the experience is like of running when every single step has to be a conversation with you and and as Mark Spiewak says, your conversation with pain, right? It's you having to say every single step doing it and, and not knowing, will it ever get easier, right? Like because for me, I don't think exercise had ever been easy. And not that it's easy now, but I don't have the same pain. And so when you look at a person that is enduring that pain, at least as somebody that was out of shape and got in shape, you're like, yes, go, go, just keep going. You're, you're on the path. And there's something uh, important to recognizing that. Yeah. And I think oftentimes, and I don't think this goes just with fitness. I think this could be applied to work as well as that people have, or anything in life, these preconceived ideas of what their limits are or what's possible and it could be someone, you know, like the sweater example of, you know, sweaters sign up for a marathon. Well, I'm not signed up for a marathon. Whereas like had sweater not signed up for once, a whole bunch of the other people in class would have never even considered that they could do that. Or, or we have somebody named SB. She likes to stitch and stands for a stitch and babe, but not babe, maybe a different word. And you know, she'll yell out, we'll be doing something. She'll say, how about we do 300? Like just jokingly. And I say, okay, let's do 300. And people are like, oh, SB. I'm like, it seems crazy. It is crazy until we do it. And then like a higher number is what becomes crazy. And you know, the 300 number is achievable. And so I think even things like seeing that in class, you're like, 
well, there are things that are possible that people just people just don't know. I think there's so much potential there that people have built these fictitious walls that don't even exist. And I think people overcome those walls in boot camp. There's something I think that's interesting about the way that you formulate your concept of leadership, right? Because you're talking about not being the drill sergeant, not being the person that stands out in front. You're like, oh, they wouldn't even consider me the leader. And yet you're gathering people together. And so it's like a leadership from behind or it's some sort of like potential herd gathering or something. But I'm I'm really deeply interested in this and I don't have a great question to get you to open up about it. But I want to add, like I want to figure out, is this just an intrinsic part of your personality? Did you are you modeling what you saw someone else do? I think it's more intrinsic. I think it's more like being the captain of a sports team or being, you know, or a cheerleading squad or whatever it is. It, it, it's more of being on the same playing level of everyone as everyone else and coming from to them as a peer versus as an authority figure, more of like, more of like a servant leader than a, than an authoritative leader. And I think that drives, I think it makes it more relatable in general. So I think if you go to a fitness class, and the person who's leading the fitness class, I have nothing against people who work in the fitness industry. I think that I would end up, I, that could be an option if you know, my other career fell apart or something, I could totally get into that. But I think people who work in the fitness industry, that is their life. That is what they do, that is their, that is their passion. That's a huge part of who they are. I show up for boot camp. That is one hour of my day. I go to the rest of my life. I do my other real job the rest of the day. And so do the people in the class. And I think it's, it builds that, it makes it a little bit more relatable and it and maybe more achievable because they're thinking, well, she, you know, she's, she's just going to go on to her actual job after this, just like I am. She's going to get up at five, whatever time, show up, maybe even run before class and then come to class and then go to work. So it's not like, I don't, there, there, there's less pressure because it's, because because it's more relatable maybe i don't i don't know yeah i mean i think of as you're talking about it i think about the experience of being in uh football in high school and having coaches that were out of shape that couldn't run sprints and were just they were they were you know telling you how great they were in high school and now telling you that you had to go do these things and you being like hey you're not out here doing this and there's something to that because i think it creates in in our minds a model that a coach is a person that stands up in front and does what we talked about in the beginning that yells and there's that there's a place for that, but it likely doesn't have the same longevity. You don't see a lot of people that have been yelled at for 15 years um, that, that want to keep going back for that sort of punishment. And let's, and let's be clear. I am sore at the end of like, when we have a hard workout, I am complaining just as much about, you know, about the workout or cursing myself later in the day. I'm like, oh, I hate that ma'am when I, when it hurts to sit down the toilet or walk down the stairs because my legs are so sore. So I am feeling the pain that they are feeling. And I, you know, we talked about how there are all different types of people in the class at different fitness levels. Uh, it doesn't matter. We're going to keep pushing until we can't keep going. So even if you have to stop and take a breath at, at you know, 10 reps, and then jump back in it when we're at 40 reps, so be it. But I'm going to try to do all of them just because why not? And so what have you learned about uh, helping people keep going when when they're just starting out? Like, what do you know about the, the person that's struggling on every step or on every rep? I don't know. I mean, I, that's, a, that's a good question. 
I think being able to pull from the experience of the class and just giving other examples, giving them, you know, if you're running with them or walking with them or whatever it is saying like, you know, when I started this class, so I started the class as a participant in the Webster Rose class and I teach the Kirkwood class. But when I started the class, I didn't even show up to the, to the Thursday class because I was so sore I couldn't get out of bed. And I think being able for them to see like, oh, she's instructing the class and she was in that much pain that she didn't even show up to class. Okay, maybe, may, maybe I can do this. And then giving other examples of, you know, so-and-so, you know, ran a 12 minute mile when they started class and now they can run a seven minute mile. So just, we're all approaching this at the same location, at the, you know, at your own level, do what you can. And if you, you know, we stamp, I stamp at the front of the class, the first day of class and give this whole first day speech. It's the exact same speech that I've given every session for the last 15 plus years. And one of the rules is give a hundred percent and a hundred percent and I, and I clarify, 100% looks different for everyone. But why in the world are you going to wake up this early, pay money, and not try your hardest? And, and your hardest is going to look different than my hardest. And no one's going to make fun of your fitness ability. I think that's a big piece of this class is no one. We take ourselves, I think, well, not everyone. I think a lot of people in the class take themselves serious. But don't We don't take the class serious. We're, it's too early. It's working out is hard. Life is hard. Let's have fun. Yeah, there's uh, when I think about um, the pushing through the times when you're uh, able to do something over the long term, it is one of those things where you need to take it seriously, but not so seriously that you are punishing yourself for things or saying that you're not good enough. And I remember as being like a young person uh, when I first when I would try and exercise and never be consistent, it was because I was always like, well, a real person that exercises runs 10 miles, right? Well, a real person can do. And then when you're just like, hey, I'm just going to get out here. The getting out here is actually what matters. And then you do start at, well, if it's going to be 30 degrees out and I'm going to be running. I might as well run fast. But the, the I think that the biggest hurdle, at least for me, was to just figure out a way to just keep showing up. Yeah, I, I think there are several people in class who feel like that, that the hardest, that the hardest part is just getting out of bed, getting out. As soon as you're there, you can do it or not do it. Like you could just socialize. There are people who come to class, barely work out, but talk to people the whole time. And that's, that's fine too. I think that's kind of what makes the class unique. They're funny. It, it's entertaining for the rest of us. Um, but just, just showing up, just, just be there is you are doing more than the person who didn't get out of bed. You will like yourself more later in the day for doing it. You might feel a little bit more tired, but you'll feel better about yourself. So you mentioned uh, a couple of times the word career, and I've been thinking a lot about this word, right? Like for a long time, the part of the American dream was you have this career and it is fulfilling and it's something that you do. And I'm starting to wonder if one, if a career is fulfilling for everyone or if it's something you have to do, but there's, there's something odd about this word. And since you've said it twice, I thought I would just bring it up. When you say career, what do you mean? Um, that's a good, I, I really mean like my day job, the thing that pays the bills, the thing that I, you know, I, I try to work hard during the day and achieve more things and just always do better and better. But I would agree with your point about, I don't think everyone, um, enjoys their job or is fulfilled by their job, but to, I, I am, I am one of those people who finds my identity in my career 
And my career shifts. I've had a, I've had a huge shift in, in career over the last you know six years or so. I I'd always worked in marketing and communications for nonprofits. And I loved it. I, I love working. I, I and I, if I didn't love it, I'd move on and do something different. If if I didn't like the if I didn't like what I was doing at the time, at least I loved the people. Um, but I've always, even when I was younger, even when I was a teenager, I loved working. I found it very fulfilling. I found it it helped me build independence. And I shifted. I had a whole shift in career from you know marketing communications for nonprofits to this this Montessori world through. You know, we had a child and through researching preschools, and we did more research on preschools than I did on colleges and fell in love with Montessori education. And through that, you know, ended up shifting my entire career to launching a Montessori school and now working for a Montessori organization that is opening Montessori schools all over the world. And that is a, never had I planned to shift my career in that direction. But I think, obviously, I think my career is, you know, what pays my bills. I, I need... We do need to make money. We do need to, you know, pay our bills. That's important. And at the same time, I don't think you should work somewhere. I mean, maybe now is not the time to be preaching this type of message because it's COVID and people are losing their jobs. But, but then the day, if you're not fulfilled, if you don't feel like you're fully contributing to society, you're not growing as an individual. I don't, I don't know why you would stay in that position. <laughs> but I know everyone has different motivations and drivers, and that's not what everyone's looking for. But, but. That's how I would define career. Yeah, I mean, it's been an interesting thing because for a very long time, I had the mantra of like, your job should fulfill you. And for me, I've been very fortunate that if I don't like the job or don't feel fulfilled by what I'm doing, I've got many, many other options. But now I'm starting to question that idea. Like, I think there are some people that finding their work to be fulfilling is really important. But there are other people that the work just has to get done so that the other things that they do find fulfilling are are available to them. I could be totally wrong, but it's been something where I, I think that that like we have this idea that has become so deeply enmeshed in our culture about careers that I think it maybe has hijacked our thinking about the fullness of of life, right? Like you're talking about how much fulfillment people get out of out of boot camp, right? And that and so I don't know. I don't really have a point here other than it's something I'm working on. And I, I think that my um, intrinsic idea about the value of a career is not automatically correct. I don't know. I think it can change too. I think it could change on your situation. When I was, when I was thinking and preparing for this interview and thinking about boot camp, I was thinking about like, there's this, this practical idealism of, of the idea of working out. Like you want to push and push and push it. But at the end of the day, like we have real life things going on. Work might be really stressful or you might have a family situation going on. And guess what? That working out, like setting that goal to, to you know, lose a certain amount of weight or run a certain pace or whatever the goal is, it's, it's actually not a priority right now. And I think the same thing can happen at work of like, I have this great, you know, a concept of what my career should be or once when I want it to be. And, you know, then you have a baby at home or COVID hits and, and the world shuts down or your business is gone. Um, and I think then it does become a, a matter of, okay, let's shift our priorities. Let's, how do we put food on the table? How do we, it, at the end of the day, maybe it is just a job, but that doesn't mean it can't be fulfilling. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you can't, I think Dr. Montessori always said, all work is noble. No work is what's not noble. And so, you, it, you know, if you're used to being a bank CEO 
and now you're, I don't know, a teller or you're, you're working in a restaurant, whatever it is that would be in your mind, shift your perception of what you thought you were going to do and what you're doing now. It doesn't matter. You could still make a difference. I feel like you could, it could still be fulfilling. And when, when this period in time changes to something else and your priorities shift, or you have time for your priorities to shift, that's a luxury that some people don't have. Um, yeah, I think your your idea about noble work, that's actually probably the, the thing I'm hitting on with the career. I wouldn't have thought of it this way. But I think that the orientation around career or striving oftentimes gets people to overlook the fact that doing things with great care, doing the details with great care is actually what the value is, right? Mm -hmm. Like achieving to get to whatever spot you think is going to give you fulfillment is actually missing the point, right? And so I, th I think it's there's just something important about this that I don't really understand. And I think that it's been very good for me to be questioning, is it the achievement or is it the journey? And I think that you have figured out, at least with your boot camp, that the journey is ac you found a way to make the journey of being in shape actually enjoyable. Yeah, I think. But I also think that could I think you pull that into most aspects of life, too. I don't, I think, I hope. And I, at the same time, I mean, maybe I, maybe I look at work, my, my day job differently than I, than most people do. I don't think all people fully enjoy going to work and I don't think they're motivated to, to find a career in which they love or do something in which they love doing. Um, I am. So maybe that's that outlook is just a little different, but I agree. I, regardless if, if it's something you're passionate about or not, you should, you should give it great care. You should treat the people around you with kindness. You should you should go above and beyond because you can. You know, Dr. Montessori had this concept of maximum effort. You know, you look at a child and they run because they can. And they're gonna run as hard as they can. And like when you see kids running, they're smiling. You don't usually see adults smiling when they're running, but you kids are, are like laughing and they're running as hard as they can. You know, a kid will try to lift something something super heavy because he can or thinks he can. Um, and at some point that, that I, the concept of maximum effort, we, we, I feel like we lose it into adulthood and, and like, should, you should just try your hardest because you're able to like, that is, that is a gift. And I think real like per perception is a big part of, of all this, of realizing like we are, we're lucky. We have the ability to get up and go work out in the morning. Our hearts are healthy. Our bodies are healthy. We, we are. Why? Let's do it because we can. You should. You can. You know. Let's, you let's you are reminding me. I have a younger brother named Jordan, and he used to play soccer. And when he would come off of the field, when he's like in first grade or second grade, his face would be so red, covered in sweat, like having gone as hard as he possibly could, and his face was on fire. You know, just so happy. And I think about like, I can't imagine do, doing exercise and having that feeling. And I wonder what the switch is. I'd never actually considered that you could, as an adult, try to cultivate that. Maybe it is just looking at, instead of just looking at with this narrow lens of like, ugh, I have to go work out or ugh, I have to go work. And maybe stepping back and just thinking like, yeah, I get to go work out. Like, I think even if you are lying to yourself, I, I'm not lying to myself, but I, I, do think, <laughs> I do think sometimes it takes that for some people to lie to themselves of like, to change that perspective of, ugh, 
to like, I get to work out. Like I am fortunate. Like if I'm running a marathon and I'm at mile 21, 22, I, you know, I start, I start smiling to convince my brain because it, it does trigger something in your brain where it's like, oh, she's happy because she's smiling. She must be, you know, she must feel good. And it's, it's like lying to my brain to convince myself, like, I feel good. I like, this is, I'm going to make it. Like, I feel good. I don't feel good at mile 21 in a marathon. I don't know who feels good at mile 21. I feel awful at mile 21. But if I can convince my brain, like trick myself, then it, it changes the perspective. It changes, it changes the whole experience. Yeah, Mark Spiewak really, it, when I interviewed him earlier for this series, he really had some ideas that really blew my mind. And one he called the three quarters problem. And the three quarters problem is when you get three quarters of the way through something, you've already gotten past all of the, hey, I'm going to do this. And now, oh, I'm doing this. And now you're just at the point where it's like, I'm in the middle of doing this. And yeah, I could probably finish, but I'm, I'm not good enough or, oh, it's too hard or, oh, whatever. And it's right before that point when you get to the last five or 10 percent where where people are cheering for you and everything. But but most people give up on themselves for that three quarters area of the problem. And that's what he's saying a coach does is try and help you get through that. And your thought about smiling through that or trying to find that is a really good mental model for me to try to try and think about because it's there how you're having all these conversations in your head, right? Like when you're running a marathon, I've never run a marathon. I'm guessing you probably hear several different versions of, of ma'am in your mind is that right uh yeah I, to be quite honest i i don't know if i'm just super like to a point of sometimes i'm overly confident in myself <laughs> and thinking i can do something so i don't tend to have that message of like i can't do this or i'm not i've never thought i'm not good enough i don't i don't see walls that other people tend to see i don't even understand how people see walls like if if someone else has done it, well, then I can certainly do it. Like I just, and even if I know, like, again, I'm not saying you could just go out the door and do it, but I do have conversations with myself. It does go from like, man, I'm awesome to like, oh my gosh, this is really hard. Okay. Now I'm going to start thinking about how thankful I am that I can do this. And I, the, the conversation shifts. <laughs> so is this intrinsic in you? Like, so I, I guess like the, the challenge of this conversation that I'm having is, your thinking is so different and yet so subtly different than most other people, right? So you're saying, I guess I don't really see walls or, or if I, if I run into that three quarters problem, I find thankfulness. Is that something that you, somebody taught you? Is that something people can learn or was that always the way that you were? Um, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I don't know that being excited about, about being able to do something. I'm trying to think back to like, in high school, I, I got to be on the soccer team. We didn't play sports growing up. So getting to play sports, you know, just as part of your education, that was, that was super exciting. And the fact I got to go to practice after school, I remember people being annoyed with the fact that I was like, we have practice today. I mean, you know, as a freshman in high school, we have soccer practice. I, and of course they probably hate me because I had zero skills, but I was really enthusiastic. Um, <laughs> like so enthusiastic that I got to be one of the captains. And it wasn't because I was voted captain. It was because the coach was like, man, she's excited to be here. <laughs> That's awesome. That is the greatest. I don't know. And maybe it was, I don't know if it was, I don't know if I was taught that or, or my parents always did. I don't know if they actually believed it or if I, they just told me it and I, 
and I believed that they believed it. I don't know that you can do anything you want. And sure, of course I can. Why couldn't I? It just, and I, and I think the same about other people. So when, when they say, well, I could, I could never do that. I think, why would they think that? Like other people have done it. So of course you can do it. So what was your experience of finding Montessori as a, as a education philosophy then? Oh, so really it was all through my daughter. I mean, we, we visited, I don't know, a dozen preschools. My husband, my husband worked funny shifts at the time, so he could have actually stayed home with our daughter and, and then, but she was, I mean, she, she's the only child. So she needed to socialize. We need her to be, we weren't thinking about education. We were thinking about childcare at the time. She was two and a half. And we visited a whole bunch of schools and we came upon Faith Academy of Montessori. And it's this little caboose train station school in Webster, um, right there on the railroad tracks on Gore. And I walked in the door and there are 30 kids under the age of six, quietly eating lunch. They had glasses that didn't have lids on, like actual glassware that didn't have lids on them. One child said something out loud and another child was like, like, can you, can you please keep it down? And I was like, what, what is going on? Look, why are these children acting like adults? And, you know, and then later on they were full, they were folding the napkins after lunch. And it was like, these children were so independent and grown up that I, I was like, sign me up. Sign, like we want an independent child. This is amazing. And I think just through that experience and getting to know Montessori more, you know, we were all in, we, we signed our child up. We attended the parent education classes. The head of the school who I, I now love, she is part of our family. We are part of her family. I will forever be indebted to her. Her name is Debbie Winter. She's amazing. Um, I am so grateful for everything she had, she has taught us and about about humans. Like she really does believe she, you know, she took on the Montessori philosophy of there's so much potential that these small humans have. These are these are the creators of men. These babies, these infants and toddlers are the creators of men. If we had higher expectations of what they could do at every level, think of what they could actually achieve. She had so much respect for these children out of what they can become. And that's not just, and that is what most Montessorians have. I don't think that's unique to Debbie. I think what's unique is, you know, you think of a preschool teacher of, oh, they're so sweet and loving. And she's pretty hardcore. I mean, she expects a lot out of these young children, but at the end of the day, my child loves Debbie Winter more than any other teacher she'll probably ever have. She's in sixth grade now and she still says, oh, I miss Faith Academy. And, and she works so hard and she learned, you know, they're doing the, the Pythagorean theorem in kindergarten. And it was, it was mind blowing. And not because they're drill sergeants, they're definitely not drill sergeants. There's, there's so much love and respect for the human child and what they can achieve that they're not saying, oh, because the state says you can't, and I don't want to get into politics of education, but you know, there are certain levels or these concepts, again, it goes back to this idea of these preconceived walls that don't exist. And these children are just sponges and they can just, they just soak it all up and, and we shouldn't limit them or say you can't do something. At the same time, there's grace and courtesy in this. Like we expect them to be kind human beings in addition to achieving great academic skills. And all it was very holistic, you know, and I think you could pair that with exercise classes as well. Like it's very holistic. It's not, we're not just there to work out. We're gonna have we're gonna enjoy each other's company, we're gonna have a good time. And actually, after class, we're gonna hang, hang out and go on vacation together. Like it is more than just that. 
and I think that was my introduction to Montessori. That happened after my introduction to boot camp, and I think it just opened my eyes of, not that I didn't respect children by any means, but I never thought of like looking at a child and thinking, I have so much respect for you. I knew it. I knew there was some reason why you were different. And I'm so glad we've gone down this path. Like you, like this Montessori concept, tell me about it. Give me this crash course on how is it that they got children to do uh, glasses and folding napkins. Like that's so outside of the norm. What is it that they do to, to instill that in children? Everything, you know, they start, they start very young. So everything builds on stuff. So at a time when, Let's go back to like infancy. And I want to preface this with, I am actually only Montessori trained at the adolescent level. Montessori training is incredibly intense. And there are diff, there are like, the, you can be trained at the zero to three, the three to six elementary or adolescent level. So I'm I'm only trained at the adolescent level. So I know that what I'm going to share here is, is just based on my training. But even if you start back at infancy, you know, you go into a preschool and they're putting them in chairs and locking them down because that's, that's safe, right? Like if you have to turn away, the child's safe and that, well, actually, if we just keep them all on the floor, if their mattresses are on the floor, if they're, if everything's down low and they are still safe because they're not going to fall off, you know, fall off a table or off a chair, they actually have the freedom to move. There's this whole freedom and responsibilities thing that goes on throughout the whole spectrum of, you know, life of they are, they're trying to develop how to move and like all these little pieces of their body and their and how they speak and how they, you know, use their hands and their feet. And they're all working independently. And then they all kind of, they come together to work as one. And then, and then, and then you can move on to the next stage of development. So after every, the child, you know, learns how to move. And if you walk into a real Montessori classroom, you'll see like the mattresses are on the floor because I don't need to tell that child when they can go to bed or when they can wake up from a nap, the child's tired. They will actually if you prepare the environment for them and remove the hurdles, you know, remove the things that are locking them down, but keep it safe. I mean, I'm not saying let's, let's, you know, I, I just, you, I mean, don't take away the safety piece. That is key for, for any child. Um, but you do need to remove the hurdles and give them a chance to develop. And, and that development comes at any stage. So then they go into this, this three to six year old range and, Look, we've already at age two, they're already using like shot glasses as baby glassware. So the environment is prepared for them. We're not gonna give them an adult glass. They can't even hold, their hands aren't big enough to hold an adult glass, but they can hold a shot glass. And guess what? They're gonna spill. They're probably gonna spill a hundred times until the day they don't spill. I mean, and then it's like, oh, I get it. There's, there's these built-in corrections of if they spill, guess what? They get wet. Like, it's, it's self-correcting. If they drop a glass on the floor, we have to clean it up. Like it, it's just what happens. You know, that's just the matter of fact. You're not giving them a bottle at age two. You're not. And so by removing, I guess this is an interesting concept because if you remove the feedback mechanism for a child to find out like, oh, if I tip the glass over too far, then I get wet. If you remove that by putting a lid on it, then the child doesn't know what, how far can I tip this glass? And all you're right. doing is extending the amount of time before they have to come to that realization. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And the same thing. So even, so by the time they're three or, you know, four or five, they using a glass is no big deal. And guess what? If they spill the spill buckets right over there, you've already got the spill bucket lesson. Oh, I loved when we got the spill bucket at home. 
It was the great, like I'd take photos of my child using the spill bucket because she'd already gotten the spill bucket lesson. And really, like, let's be honest, she's not going to do an awesome job cleaning up this, an orange juice spill on the ground. It's going to be, it's, it's probably still going to be sticky. And when she leaves, I'm going to clean it up again. But in her mind, like, oh, I made a mess. I can clean it up. And, and, and there's no preconceived idea of like, I'm three, I shouldn't have to clean this up. No, it's like, I made the mess. I should have to clean it up. It's my mess. And that's building that independence and awareness for self and courtesy for others um, in the classroom. And it just builds on that. And even like with writing, like they, they haven't washed the tables, but they haven't washed them in this motion because guess what? When they start doing cursive, which is what they learn in Montessori, they're using this motion. Everything builds on each other. And, and really she, Dr. Montessori, if you read more even about the, the way she um, took material, she took abstract math and turned them into materials and uh, it's just, she's she's a genius. It, there's so many parts, like the, I'm going over the life skills basic side of it, but the actual edu- the academic side of it is just mind blowing. Oh, I'm I'm hooked. I'm this, you've got me, right? I've heard a lot of people talk about Montessori, but nobody has given me uh, this understanding of it. And right now I have a three month old and I, in my mind, I've been like, yeah, I got a good two years before I have to start reading these child development books. But no, now I'm, I'm like, oh, God, oh, no, I got to start now. Everyone should read The Absorbent Mind. If nothing else, it's written by Dr. Montessori. If nothing else, just to get a better understanding of what is possible. I don't I don't know why we think these children, if this was 100 years ago, we children did way more when they were younger than, than they do now. And I don't know. I just, I think... I think we'd all be better off if we, in every aspect of life, if we took away what is like, here's here's what's expected and you don't need to go beyond that or we don't expect you to go beyond that. Um, so I have been like, you know, I have this little child that I can now experiment with and it is nothing but joy for me. I have to like limit the amount of time that I'm, I, because I have to go to work every once in a while. And so uh, the other day I figured out when she is so she will mimic my mouth motions and i can actually get her prompt her to make sounds way before the books tell you that that she really can and so she started to like actually enunciate sounds and differentiate them but what i figured out that was really magical was if i record her doing it and i play it back for her she can mimic along with the recording at the same pace it is astounding. Like, I don't know how anybody gets anything done when they have an infant or a newborn around them because there's it's so fascinating what they can do. Uh, our experiences with infants are very different because I can tell you I had a really hard time. We were she our infant cried nonstop. So to me, I was like, why why do people do this to themselves? Like this is miserable. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the other side of it. So like, you know, I'm getting like six, like five hours of sleep yeah. max. Like I'm I'm definitely struggling. And it's the talking that makes it like, I'll do any of this for you, Violet. Just give me a couple of words. Just keep going. <laughs> God, it, it's a good thing. They are cute, right? Like, And I, I always wish people when they have new babies, I just, I hope they sleep well. I hope you have a baby who sleeps well. That is like the greatest gift ever. I think that this must be a part of of evolution or some kind of the bonding with the parents because there's no way that there was a selection pressure towards children that that you know cried or had these problems. It, those would have been the harder children to have kept alive. And so there must be something that happens through that bonding with the parents 
or through whatever is going on there that actually makes them more resilient. And so I'm trying very hard not to be resentful of the nonstop crying when I can't figure out the problem. I think I, I think irrational love for your child is what helps us evolve as humans because there is no way. I mean, who? What other animal? What other animal is going to put up with all of this and care for a child for 18 years or longer? And if if yeah, just I, irrational love, I think, is helped with human evolution. I think it pushes the human mind, at least mine to be able to have the capacity for more patience than I've ever had. Right. Like, so you're sitting there being like, I, no matter what input I put into this child, the output that I want doesn't come. And no matter how many gradations or differentiations I do, the output still doesn't come. Eventually, most of the time, human beings quit when that happens, I agree. but you can't quit. <laughs> I think having a child is the most humbling experience you could have. And I think it's like, if it, if it doesn't break yet, it is going to make you hopefully a far more patient person. And, and I just, it was, it was extremely humbling for me as, a, as an individual. I, I think most things come pretty easy. I am very fortunate that most things come pretty easy to me. That was just so humbling. It did, it did not come as easy as it probably comes to most moms or parents. Yeah. And I think that there is like, um, maybe just like, you know, we have this kind of mantra that everybody should, should want to have a career and this will be so fulfilling. The aspect of, of raising a child that you don't understand is that maybe 80 to 90% of it is you suffering. And that like, you just get these glimpses of, of times when it's not suffering that, that you're like, okay, that was all worth it. But like, I mean, when, before they learn how to smile, then Everything is input and you get virtually zero positive output. Like the only positive output you get is they're not screaming at me. Well, and then I think the only thing, I think the thing that helped me is just like the same, I guess it's the same idea of like, just take into perspective here. Like, look, you have a healthy child. Like I realize we are super lucky. I realize I'm only sleeping two hours a night and that is lucky compared to a lot of parents whose children are sick and, it, and realizing like, Hey, this is not going to last. This period of no sleeping or or colic or whatever it is 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 not a real problem. It it will pass. <laughs> it's going to pass. It has to pass. As older parents, I can say one of the best things that I accidentally did for for myself um, was that I was in shape. Like, and although it's much harder to stay in shape, and I don't eat as well as I was before. But but by being older parents, we're just tired all the time. And so by being able to, I, I think I was telling Annie this, um, every father should go do squats for some period of time before they have a child. Because eventually you hit a point where you're holding the child and you're sitting down and you want to stand up without waking the child up. If you've done squats, you finally get paid back for those awful lifts because you can stand up without needing to like put your hand down and bend over or do all these weird things. So it's the best pitch I can make for doing squats is if you ever have a child, it will pay off. Yeah. Whereas we were like, she's sleeping. Don't move. Don't make so um, if if uh, people are interested in finding out more about Montessori, you had mentioned a book. What book do you think that is? So it depends at what level you want to find out. Vance, I think you should read The Absorbent Mind. I think you would love The Absorbent Mind. That is a Dr. Montessori book. 
There's another book. Um, I can't remember. Why do you say that? Why, why do you think I would like that? Um, because I think it paints the picture of what Dr. Montessori saw and the human potential of individual. It digs more into the theory of Montessori. Whereas like, if I think if you're just, a, if you are a parent who actually, I don't have time to read about the theory of Montessori and really dig into this all, you know, the whole pedagogy, I really want to know why this would benefit me. I think you should read Montessori Madness. And it was written by a, a father of children who, who, you know, he stumbled upon Montessori school that he enrolled his children in. And then he found out that they can be independent children or individuals at, at three years old. You know, they, they can actually pour themselves cereal or make, you know, make food for themselves at that age or whatever. I think, I think for the lay person, Montessori Madness is a great book. If, especially if you have young children. If you don't have young children anymore, I don't think you need to, you need to read that. Um, but if you really want to learn more about Monster, I think the Observant Mind is is a wonderful book. Eye opening. Or any of Dr. Monster's lectures. Gosh, she has so many lectures. Um, that you know, educating the human potential. That's another great. They're super. That one's super short, so anyone could read that one quickly. Um, but you should just learn. I think it will open your eyes to human potential in general, and maybe just give you a better perspective, not just of education, but humans, human spirit. Oh, I love the sound of that. And, and the, so I'm going to, I want to wrap this up because I think this has been a great interview. And I think the thing that you just said captures what I think is so great about it is that you have a way to, um, let the human spirit free. I heard from a lot of people that like, uh, how impactful your, uh, boot camps have been and the way that you lead them or guide them or whatever that is. And, um, so I am now inspired. I will go read some Montessori books and I'm really glad that you came on to be a part of this exercise week series. If people live in St. Louis and they are interested in, uh, in finding out about your boot camp or your husband's boot camp, where can they go to learn more? So the, we run our boot camps through the rec center. So mine is run through the Kirkwood rec center. We're not going inside right now because of COVID. We, we all prefer just to stay outside so we can socially distance. Um, my husband runs his through the Webster class. I'm going to throw out there. The Kirkwood class is a more difficult class. <laughs> and, and so are you guys planning on going through the winter? Will you do it in the cold and the, and the snow and all that? Um, we, we do have class wins, call outside, but usually we're in the gymnasiums when it's not COVID time. We could, we could still socially distance in the gymnasium. Um, right now we're just pushing it off as long as we can just for safety reasons, but it might be, it might get to a point where we have to go in the gym, but we'll see. I mean, you can just throw on some gloves and a hat. You'll be fine. Amen. I love working out outside, particularly if it's cold. I, it's, that's my favorite. Cause then, um, to use Mark Spiewak's word, anytime you see somebody else doing it, you have this sense of unity with them, right? Like you're like, Hey, we're exactly. suffering together. Well, ma'am, Sarah Krinsky, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Vance. I appreciate it. <laughs>